Welcome to the latest edition of the Baltic Triangle podcast with me, Mick Ord. And me, Mark Reeson. And how are you today, Mark? Okay, mate. Yeah, a bit windswept, Mick, but I'm all right. Um, walking down from town into the Baltic, there's a, quite a gale blowing along today and uh, walking against the wind, which is quite tricky, but yeah, all right, thank you. Yes, it's a wig watch day today, not that you wear a wig, of course. Now, got some cracking guests today, I really think that people who are interested in just life and people's stories in general are going to love today. You've been speaking to Dave Critchley, who's the executive head chef at the Luban Restaurant and Academy here in Liverpool. They did look at various sites across the city. Uh, people ask us, why aren't you down on the Albert Docks? Why aren't you Castle Street? Why aren't you City Centre? Uh, and the, uh, the main reason for that is, yeah, after we toured five sites across all these areas that I've just mentioned there. The Chinese contingent loved the architecture of the Baltic. If, for those who don't know, we're in the Higson's Brewery building in the Kays Brewery Village, this huge old sandstone building. And I believe you've been speaking to Brian Reed, Daily Mirror columnist, a local Liverpool lad, who's also written a new book about working class heroes. Everyone, everyone in America thinks you're from London, aren't they, if you've got an English accent. Yeah. And Ali thought we are from London, because we were from the London newspaper. So I'm working on his gym in Michigan. And I have to say at this point, this was 20 years ago, so he's suffering badly from, from Parkinson's, but he, but he comes in and out of it, you know. And he showed me these, these pictures around, these fantastic black and white photographs around his gym, which he wasn't really fighting him, but his wife had put there to try and help him with his Parkinson's, maybe, you know, get in there, punch a few bags and that. And he comes to the picture, the Beatles, the famous one where he puts, he's got his arm up, four Beatles have fallen back. I don't know if you can remember that. Yeah. And he says, the, the, the Beatles. And I says, I says, I know, yeah, they're, they're from my city. And he looked at me. And he must have looked at me one time. He said, oh. he said you ain't no fool if you're from Liverpool. <laughs> I thought that should go on a t-shirt. The Baltic Triangle podcast is powered by Talk Talk's Future Fibre, which has now arrived here in Liverpool. Future Fibre broadband is ultra-fast and ultra-reliable, and with speeds up to a whopping 900 megabit, it's fast enough to handle anything you throw at it. Plus, you can connect over 75 devices at once, so bye-bye fighting over the Wi-Fi. As if it couldn't get any better, Future Fibre plans now come with an Amazon Eero mesh router, so you get the latest in Wi-Fi 6 tech for free. To see if your postcode can get Future Fibre, search Talk Talk Future Fibre now. My interview in this episode is with Dave Critchley, who's the executive head chef at Luban Restaurant, situated in the Canes Brewery Village, right in the heart of the Baltic. He wants to establish Luban as a centre of culinary arts, with the aim of bringing a whole new generation of executive Chinese chefs trained to a high standard. I went along to his restaurant, Luban, to have a chat with him about his ambitious venture and all the opportunities that it will bring to the people of Liverpool. Luban is this uh, fantastic, amazing uh, collaboration between China and uh, the UK. So it's not just a restaurant. So people see the restaurant, but the restaurant is almost the shop front for what the partnership is actually all about. Uh, and in the background is this uh, training business and academy uh, and the centre of kind of Chinese culinary arts, uh, the first of its kind outside of China. And this is about um, educating about Chinese cuisine, 
culture and hopefully, yeah, pushing out those skills, um, engaging with local communities. But really, yeah, is it? It's about bringing on a generation of Chinese chef who is trained and um, skilled at what they do. So yeah, this fantastic opportunity arose and there was a big investment from China into Liverpool, which is fantastic for the city. And you see in front of you now Luban Restaurant, which is incredible. Uh, behind the scenes, though, we've got this Luban Training Academy as well, which is really exciting. The opportunities that this, this venture is obviously going to create for the local economy and for local people is, is, is phenomenal. Um, how did you end up getting involved in this personally, Dave? I mean, I'm sure it involved a lot of hard work. Yeah, it's a good question. I was working out in Manchester at the time uh, at Australasia, which is a big kind of Japanese fusion restaurant. I'm kind of cutting my teeth with Asian ingredients and learning about all these amazing Asian ingredients uh, when I got the phone call. And it was basically, we're opening a Chinese restaurant in Liverpool. Would you like to be considered? At first, I kind of thought, why are you asking me? Chinese food's not me, and yeah, I've, I've not experienced Chinese food before. But when the project was explained to me properly, I couldn't say no. It was uh, a chance of a lifetime, really. Um, yes, the restaurant was going to be a Chinese restaurant, but with a difference. It was authentic. It was a bit more high-end, a bit more fine dining, Um with the real emphasis of showcasing real Chinese culinary arts. Uh, and when the opportunity arose and I realised that I would be travelling out to China initially to kind of learn some of the culture, see some of the food, that's a, an opportunity of a lifetime and, and you just don't say no to that. So after kind of 23 years, I think it was, of doing plenty of British, a little bit of French, Spanish, South American food, um, Chinese is now the way forward and uh, yeah I'm really excited to be part of this project I'm really looking forward to what's coming next. What do you consider to be the most um, authentic thing about the way that you do Chinese food then here? We've really looked at the ingredients uh, we've really looked at the recipes that I was shown out in China and all the recipes that came back with us from China yes they might have seen this uh, dish before somewhere but when they taste it it suddenly tastes cleaner fresher uh, lighter a lot of people say as well it's just a huge difference the food that's being eaten out in China compared to what's being eaten currently in the UK as Chinese food in inverted commas there what we're eating over in the UK and what we have been eating for the last 60, 70, 80 years is this kind of westernised version of Chinese food that the British palate was demanding. More salt, more sugar, more flavour, gloopier, thicker sauces, more like gravy because that's what we're used to. But if you could kind of imagine over in China, these wet dishes would just be completely wasted because you're eating them with chopsticks. What would you do with all that sauce over there? It's completely, it's so much different. So everything feels a lot cleaner, tidier, neater, with massive emphasis on fresh ingredients over in China. Everything has to be super healthy, super nutritious. And uh, yeah, that just, it's worlds apart from what we see over in the UK. So we're hoping to um, slowly and surely and gradually bring all those, uh, that, that culture of cooking and cuisine over from China into Luban and then let um, Luban showcase that to the rest of Liverpool and the UK. Talk to me a little bit more about your experiences in China. That must have just been a massive culture shock for you personally. 
China was absolutely incredible, like life changing. People say that, oh, I went here, it, it was life changing. Well, China was that kind of life changing moment. Um, I think, first and foremost, just arriving in China and realizing just how massive, how vast it is. I mean, we, we rocked up in, in Tianjin. It took us about 20 hours to get there. And um, yeah, the first thing you notice is this is a small city in China, 15 million people. It takes about six hours to drive from one side to the other. So absolutely vast. And then the culture is just incredible. It's a beautiful culture, very respectful. Um, and then specifically to us, that kind of culture of food and dining, it's, it's just next level and it's something beautiful that the UK should be aspiring to be. It's that community, it's that family time around the table that's massively important. And that's something that we, we seem to be losing a lot of these days in the UK. Uh, business is all conducted around the dining table. Anything important all focuses around the dining table and food. And as such, people who create food, the chefs and people who serve food are massively respected in China. So it's seen as a, a, an art form, which it really should be. It's, it's years and years of practice and honing skills going to becoming a Chinese master chef. And it's a shame that the UK doesn't quite hold that same value. Uh, in the UK, we just seem to be whatever the cheapest deal is that's the best whatever the biggest portion is that's the best uh, our, our perception of what value for money is in the uk when it comes to food is just completely skewed compared to everything else it's it's bizarre do you know what I mean you can walk into a restaurant with a 500 pound pair of trainers on and then complain about your 30 pound steak not being value for money it's it's absolutely bonkers but over in china it's 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 an art form um and, it, and they're very proud of it as well. That was one thing we noticed. Every restaurant we went to, the owner would come and talk to us about his restaurants, about his tables, about his chairs, about the quality of ingredients, about how good his chef was. You could feel that pride just emanating from him about what he does uh, and his restaurants and what he's achieved. And that was just beautiful to see. Um, and my guide was uh, Master Wu, who would then go on to become my teacher. And everywhere he went, he was treated like this rock star. It was incredible. Uh, everyone flocked to him. And he was treated as, yeah, a rock star. He, he, he's trained thousands of Chinese chefs in this city. And he's, he's renowned across the entire country as one of the leading chefs in China. And uh, it was just great to see that everyone wanted to see him. Everyone wanted to talk to him. Everyone wanted to show him what they'd learned since they'd left his kind of uh, tutorage. And it was just amazing to see this huge culture shift where food is massively important. Uh, drink that goes with food is massively important. And that community around the dining table. And I, mean, I think that was the biggest thing I noticed. Uh, and obviously that was what I was over there to see and experience. Uh, and it was, it was incredible. So yeah, China, a fantastic country. If anyone ever gets a chance to go there, they should really give it a go. As a city, Liverpool has a big, big Chinese connection going way, way back. And obviously, we've probably got one of the oldest Chinese communities in Europe. How can we make more of that? How can we have more ties with China going forward? Yeah, Liverpool has such a, a deep and rich culture um, of, of, of China within it. It's part of, it is part of Liverpool's genetic makeup. Um, Liverpool is a city of, of immigrants, really, from all over the world, and, and, and that's fantastic. And that's what really gives Liverpool its uh, pizzazz, its culture. It is what it is. It's this massive melting pot of cultures, and it's incredible. 
And like you said, it is the oldest community of Chinese settlers in Europe. And that will have all happened because of the trade links between Liverpool and China. And they were massively important in building Liverpool as a city and also in China as well. And what's fascinating is Tianjin, where we went to, this massive port city, has these incredible striking similarities with Liverpool in terms of the architecture, the culture. And it's it's amazing to see, really. Yeah, we need to make more of it. Liverpudlians need to know about the Chinese culture uh, and it is evident in the museums and stuff like that but I think it needs to be taught at school Liverpool history this is where we come from this is why our chippies are all trying to serve Chinese food that sounds strange doesn't it but it's different outside the city you go outside the city you go to a chippy and it's fish and chips it's not Chinese food and the reason for that is Liverpool has this so super rich Chinese culture here and loads of Chinese uh, settlers and families that live um, with us and amongst us and settled in into Liverpool culture. It needs to be celebrated more. We have a Chinatown. Uh, we have the biggest arch, Chinese arch, outside of China, which I think is incredible as well. But the um, the Chinatown, I don't know, it's not up to much at the moment. It's not on the same level as Manchester or certainly not London. And we really need to be investing in there, as far as I'm aware, as far as I, I think. I really believe we should be investing in our Chinatown and it should become this cultural centre of Liverpool and it would attract a lot of tourists as well, which would be fantastic for our economy. We could keep banging on about the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles, but really there's so much more to Liverpool than just the Beatles. Let's talk about our Chinese culture. Let's talk about our Irish culture, our Welsh culture, our Scandinavian culture, and let's build on that. Yeah, the links with China are huge. Obviously, China is this powerhouse in the world at the moment. And Liverpool needs to be there alongside China, uh, building partnerships and um, and helping Liverpool to grow as well. So any links with China um, just need strengthening up and, and, and really promoting. And then hopefully more business between Liverpool and China, as there has been for hundreds of years, can only help both of us. Um, and I'd love to see that moving forwards. A bit more embracing of Chinese culture because it is so incredible. Um, and also the business element. Yeah, I mean, it would be foolish to, to be looking elsewhere, especially with everything going on with Europe at the moment. So China, they're really moving at a rapid, rapid pace over there. And that's something the UK really needs to uh, follow suit with. We talked about your mentor, Master Wu. Tell me a little bit more about what that was like to be uh, trained under him. What an incredible opportunity for a lad from Liverpool to suddenly become the apprentice of one of China's top master chefs. We believe it's the first time a Westerner's ever been invited into that kind of inner circle. There may be other non-Chinese people around the world learning, uh, but we believe this is the first time a uh, Westerner's been recognised by China as an official apprentice, as one of their master chefs. Uh, so that is huge, massive honour for me. So yeah, Master Wu, my Lao Shu, or uh, teacher, as I would call him, um, has been training me via Skype, I suppose, is the best way to say it, uh, through TV screens, through emails, uh, through messages. And when everything uh, goes back to normal, I'll be back out in China learning more from the man himself. And hopefully we'll manage to get Master Wu over to Liverpool to spend some time here teaching uh, chefs here 
and showcasing what he can do, which would be absolutely incredible. The plans going forward is my learning continues. Uh, ultimately reach that MasterChef status myself in a few years and uh, bring on apprentices myself uh, from the city of Liverpool and uh, hopefully yeah, train them up to a level which is acceptable by China and send them out into the world to do the same, basically. And we've got this massive circle of learning there, starting with China into Liverpool, which, again, fantastic for the city, uh, and then off out into the rest of the UK and hopefully Europe. So a huge opportunity for me, which obviously brings along its own pressures. And, uh, yeah, really excited. Well done you for recognising what a great opportunity and an honour that is. But talk to me about the pressure of the responsibilities. What's that weight of responsibility like for you personally? Yeah, of course, it's um, a huge honour, a huge responsibility. Uh, and I kind of take that each day as it comes, really. Uh, I just want to do my absolute best. I want to reach that MasterChef status. I want to do what I've been instructed to do by Master Wu and ultimately from China. Pressure is something that I'm happy to work under I, I, I like being pushed I like being um, stretched I like being under pressure that's part and parcel of this job like I said it, it does bring pressure and it does bring a bit of stress with it the honour of being bestowed that title kind of easily outweighs anything negative from it at all and I always see it as a positive every single day during work and when I'm at home thinking of uh, new recipes and new dishes uh, like I said, it's such a huge honour um, that I've been bestowed and, and I'll, um, I'll do my utmost to make sure that I, I succeed. You're not in the Baltic by accident, are you? There was a choice to come here for them. And talk to me a little bit about how that happened. So the Chinese came over, obviously the contingent from China, and that included Master Wu and other members of the college where we are. Uh, associated with over in Tianjin. Uh, they did look at various sites across the city. Uh, people ask us, why aren't you down on the Albert Docks? Why aren't you Castle Street? Why aren't you City Centre? Uh, and the uh, the main reason for that is, yeah, after we toured five sites across all these areas that I've just mentioned there, the Chinese contingent loved the architecture of the Baltic. If, for those who don't know, we're in the Higson's Brewery building in the Kays Brewery Village this huge old sandstone building and they fell in love with that building immediately because it reminded them of home the second they saw it it reminded them of Tianjin and home and that is to do with striking similarities between Liverpool and Tianjin it was built it was grown by um, European settlers and merchants who had set up offices and stations and big huge buildings uh, very similar to the story of Liverpool, really, when the merchants came and, and Liverpool grew as a port city. They immediately fell in love with that building. And as soon as they came inside and touched the walls and felt the space, I know that sounds really strange to us, but in, in Chinese culture, feng shui is a, is a huge thing. It's about the energy and how it moves around the building. And immediately as they walked in, they felt home and they felt safe and they felt fortuitous and they felt like this was 100% the place to be. It was quite odd seeing people like touching the walls with both hands and feeling the energy in there. Uh, the Chinese certainly felt the energy in this space and said, this is where it has to be. This this feels right. And, uh, and, and we never looked back really. So yeah, it was quite strange for our kind of concept to be in the Baltic. 
um, but hopefully it's going to be a catalyst for more high-end businesses, restaurants. Uh, you can see all the lovely apartment buildings that are going up around here as well. This is a, an area of development, of, of fast, rapid development, and that is exactly what we need here in the Baltic, and uh, hopefully that sets the Baltic up for years to come. So talk to me about the future of Luban. The same as everyone. We went through this torrid 18 months to two years during the uh, the lockdowns and COVID. We had this great plan, this great strategy, uh, which would involve me being out in China every six months, continuing my learning. And as a result, the business growing in the UK and hopefully spreading across um, yeah, the other parts of the UK, growing as a business. Uh, but we still aim to do that. So as soon as the world returns back to normal, I'd like to be back out in China again as soon as possible. I'll be touching on Master Wu coming over here. That is that is still very much the plan. Chefs coming from China to run training courses in the UK. Um, myself and my team traveling out to China to, to, to learn more about the culture, uh, food, cuisine, recipes, and everything that goes along with it. Luban, we'd love to see a second site as quickly as possible. Maybe a slightly different concept. And we'd like to see Lubans across the country and potentially Europe over the next 10 years because that is the plan. It's This is a project. This is not just a restaurant. It's not just a restaurant group. This is about education. This is about spreading the word of Chinese culture and authentic Chinese cuisine. And the, the quicker we can do that, the better. We do have plenty of mini projects in the pipeline, uh, YouTube tutorials talking about fantastic fresh Chinese cuisine and how to cook it at home. We've got plans for uh, collaborating with several local businesses as well. Lots of exciting stuff in the pipelines and hopefully we get the opportunity over the next year or two to really push those out and get Luban out, out there in the world. So for anyone who's uh, interested in coming and sampling some of the fantastic food that you serve up here and, uh, you know, st steeping themselves in the culture, um, how can they keep in touch with what you've got going on and how can they book and things like that? So social media is obviously the easiest way to do it at the moment. We've got uh, pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, follow my own personal journey through my own Instagram as well, Chef Dave J. And certainly we've got the websites to look at as well, where you can look at the menus, a little bit of the stories in there, what's coming up, what we are planning for the next few months is all on that website. And if you subscribe to our uh, email subscription service, you get all this information, any special offers that we're doing. But the best thing to do is, is, is get down, come in, book yourself in uh, and just experience what we're doing here. We, we, we try and be more than just a restaurant. It's not just food on a plate in front of you it's all about the experience here the music may not be quite what you expected because this is what we experienced out in china the decor is exactly the same it's a beautiful restaurant this is what we experienced out in china and the servers as well are all really well trained on what the dishes are where they come from what's the meaning what's the culture behind this dish why do we eat this and for us that's really important we are spreading a little bit of that culture a little bit of education we're not trying to ram it down anyone's throat we would like you to come in and walk away with that little bit more knowledge than you did have before you came in about Chinese food and Chinese culture, uh, which may be interesting coming from Dave Critchley, the White Scouser. But uh, yeah, but, but, but the story is there and, uh, and hopefully people can buy into what we're trying to do here. And certainly come down, give it a go and let us know what you think. Fantastic to hear from Dave there. Um, and really, really interesting to hear all about 
the ambitious plans that he's got to bring along a whole new generation of Chinese chefs there. And when I was listening to it, I thought, is Dave Chinese himself? But he's not, is he? he as he said, he's a white scouser from Liverpool who was basically headhunted by the sound of it, Mark, taken to China. And I mean, when he was talking about China, I had no idea about the importance of the food culture there, did you? Not at all. And it was a really, really refreshing thing for me to sit there with him and just have a chat over a coffee. Um, we, we sat there and we talked about uh, exactly what it was to have that element of respect and the element of it, the importance in their culture of the chef. Wherever he went, he was mobbed rather like a pop star might be mobbed. And so there was such an interesting angle for it, for it to be that Chinese have a real reverence for food you know, and a, a real reverence for the fresh ingredients that go in it. So it's a completely different experience there than it might be here. It was really, really refreshing, I think, to hear more about the genuine Chinese culture. Absolutely, and, and again, they have a real connection with the city here in Liverpool. You know, that, that really amazing chat with Dave about uh, that the, you, you only have to see the way they were when they came to the Baltic to find that location thinking about the feng shui and how it felt so good. And it's a really good fit for us. And I'm really, really looking forward to the opportunities that a stronger relationship with the Chinese community um, would bring with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, Dave made some interesting comments about Liverpool's Chinatown, which, I mean, I've been walking, I walk through there three times a week, and it's fair to say, it's not what it should be, is it? Let's leave it at that. It's not what it should be and hasn't really been what it should be for, for, for many, many years, I think. So if this can do anything to kind of boost Chinese culture in the city and who knows by extension Chinatown, it's got to be a good thing. Definitely. Collaboration's definitely the way to go forward with that. Brian Reed is a nationally known journalist, a Liverpool lad who's been writing in the Daily Mirror regularly for many, many years. Me and him went to the same school as well, so I know him quite well. He's a really, really good writer, and his latest book, I think, is a cracker. It's called Diamonds in the Mud, A Working Class Hero is Something to Me. And Brian has long had a, a bee in his bonnet, if you like, about the fact that at school, all the history lessons seem to focus on kings and queens and aristocratic heroes like Churchill and you name it. And Brian has thought for some time, what about working class heroes? Why don't we celebrate them a, a bit more? So he has done in this book. Um, and he talks about a number of um, heroes to him, working class heroes. He talks about Doreen Lawrence. He talks about Muhammad Ali, whom he met. He talks about Bill Shankly, inevitably, Brian's a big Liverpool fan, and also the trade union leader, Jack Jones, among many, many others. So I caught up with Brian recently, and he told me that this was very much a lockdown book. Well, I wrote it in lockdown, yeah, I wrote it in lockdown. Um, but it's, I think like most books or ideas, creative ideas that you have, it's been percolating, that's a nice word, isn't it? For quite a few years about the notion that we're taught history in this country certainly when we were at school, I think. Um, I think it's just through, the, through a prism of kind of the ruling class, monarchs. Everyone knows, you know, the names of Henry Yates, wives, why? What's the point of that, you know? Um, great public explorers went to public school, Eton prime ministers. It's always the powerful people. Not to say we shouldn't be taught about that because they did forge the country, but so did loads of people from below, loads and loads of working class people who I just thought, 
in terms of percentages, in terms of what they, what they did and how underrepresented they are, kind of said a lot about this country and a lot of the problems with it, that kids from a certain class, working class kids, if you like, they don't get taught about the heroes, amongst them, if you like, in their community. They could inspire them. They could inspire them to go on and be, and be famous people or to achieve. And it really hit home to me uh, when Mike Lee was bringing out uh, the uh, film about the Peterloo Massacre. It's called Peterloo. And, um, and in an interview, he, he said exactly what I'd been thinking for years. He said, he said, I went to a good school in Salford, a grammar school in Salford. And he said, I grew up five minute walk from St. Peter's Field where that massacre took place. And I was never taught about it in school. This was a pivotal moment, a pivotal moment in social history. You know, I think 19 people were killed, maybe 18, by basically, you know, it was just, it was just, it was just a, a meeting, a kind of uh, uh, a rally about, about to get more votes for, 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 for wider suffrage. And, and what it caused was, I mean, the Manchester Guardian was set up on the back of it. Shelley wrote the, the Mask of Anarchy. Um, and, you know, the way, the way it changed in the voting system. But he wasn't, he wasn't told. And he, and, and he kind of said, well, but yeah, I knew the name of all of, I've just mentioned all of any dates, wives. What's that about, kind of thing? So I just thought, well, hang on a minute. I've spent 40 years in journalism now. I've interviewed a lot of people, a lot of famous people. A lot of people I've also chosen to interview. I've gone on my way to interview. There's been a certain pattern. And if I look at it and I put it together, a lot of those people were all working class heroes. People, some of them have, their, have definitely had their praises sung. Muhammad Ali has had his praises sung. Bill Shank has had his praises sung. A lot of people like uh, the Hillsborough Mothers have never really had their, their story fully told. I mean, there have been news stories about them. Uh, Doreen Lawrence, yes, she's had a story told, but what a, what a story. Um, and, and, and like Ian Byrne and, and Dave Kelly did the food banks in Liverpool, which, which led on to the whole Marcus Rashford basically for forcing a Tory government to make two U-turns. So I just thought, and of course it was happening during COVID and um, nurses were dying on the wards. Nurses were dying of this, of this COVID. These were the real heroes. We were out clapping them every Thursday. And yet I knew that once the clapping stopped, come six months, a year down the line, they wouldn't get the pay rise. They wouldn't be the heroes anymore. They'd just be other workers. So that, that is a, a, a long way of saying that I just thought, well, why not write a book about working class heroes that you think should, that you've met, blah, blah, blah. And also, um, one story in there is that the Dockers, the Dockers in Liverpool, I mean, their, their dispute, which was, you know, basically they got sacked at the point of principle, but they wouldn't take it. And they set up the CASA in town, the Social Justice Hub, which is my local, but also I kind of, I know a lot of the work that goes on there is phenomenal. They take anybody off the street, just go in and and give them free legal advice. They've, they've, they've got uh, millions of pounds of people over the years to back pay and benefits, etc. So I thought, well, I'll do it and I'll get a good advance for it and I'll give all the money to them. And there's a nice little socialist gesture which actually does some good and maybe it might sell a few more books on the back of it. So that's the story. So our whole kind of perception of what a hero is, it's changed over the past couple of years, hasn't it, as, you, as you'd said? And we had the Coulston statue yeah. Being overturned in Bristol as well, yeah. so this is an opportune time for That's to kind of reinvent the idea, really, isn't it? Well, it was, it, well people started questioning, didn't they? I mean, that whole thing you mentioned there about <clears throat> looking at imperialist statues, the younger generation going Cecil Rhodes, Colston, and going, why is that there? In Liverpool, why do we have 
why don't we question about these streets we have that were named after slave trade? Let's just educate, let's look into it. And I think they changed, they tried to change the name of Gladstone Hall, didn't they, um, the students? And that's great, because that's not to say that these people didn't do stuff in history. But let's question it, let's ask it, and, let, and let's see how today, what, do we have to revere them? Or should they be in museums and, and their story told? And so, yeah, it was, it was a time when, when, when the notion of heroism was being questioned, particularly around the low-paid workers who kept us going through, through the lockdown. But then I come back to it. Once the status quo started to be kind of resumed, have they really been rewarded? Are they, are they still the heroes and we just pay, or we just pay them lip service? You know? so, has the, so has the notion of heroism really changed? I mean, unfortunately at the moment, we, we kind of, we're still in a culture where, you know, if you walk on a, if you be getting a reality TV show and you walk on, the, on a red carpet with a nice uh, dress on or whatever, um, you know, you, you get a fated, aren't you? And, uh, and that's a shame. But, but I, do, I, I do think that my main point was, I've always thought, why do a lot of public school educated kids go on to do really well? And this isn't a criticism of them as individuals, it's a criticism of the system. And any I met when I went to university, they had this air of confidence. You could smell it half a mile away. You know, they could smell this kind of, it was bred into them. It was, it was the survival of the fittest in that school or the way it was taught them. Or the, and not, 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 not just confidence, but a kind of um, a privilege. There's something that we're, 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 gonna, we're, we're, we're destined to do really well here because we've had a really good education being paid for. We went to Oxford, blah, blah, blah. Most weightless kids didn't have that. I mean, don't get me wrong. They had their own confidence, their own way. A lot of scouts at university made themselves known. But what I'm saying is they never really thought, well, we're going we're gonna to reach that top of these of these professions. We're going to be a top lawyer. We're going to be, we're going to, we, you know, we're, we're going to be a, even a top journalist. I mean, you know, most thought, well, no, your place kind of thing. And if you do well, great. And I think apart that down is down to the fact that when kids are educated, there's a lot of, a lot of say middle-class kids in public schools, the heroes are people like them. The peers that came from their backgrounds. So the kind of thinking, the taught to think, and that could be you. Just take your place, just get up there. You could be prime minister. If you look at how Cameron and Johnson chose to become prime minister in their heads, apart from the fact they both, you know, were, I mean, Johnson did think he'd be king of the world at one day, you know, and Cameron just basically thought, well, what's a good career for me where I can, where I use my skills and my connections? Oh, I'll cut politics into it. It's this idea that that ladder's there for us. We can just climb it because I've seen, because all our contemporaries, all our ancestors did it. Whereas, whereas the vast majority of working as kids in state schools who are taught a history of, of kind of upper class heroes, if you like, um, where are they going to get that confidence from? Unless the curriculum kind of changes to, to represent more people from working class backgrounds who made it. So give me an example of someone from your book. If I'd have known about that, that would have really helped me and my and my mates back at school. I, I mean, I will use the examples that I've just mentioned of say Margaret Aspinall and Anne Williams. I believe because the women as well, because I think men have more confidence. Men are taught, you know, boys are taught to be more confident that they're going to succeed. But what those two women did, just ordinary women, you know, one from a heightened council estate, the other from like from from, from Formby, um, they refused to say they refused to take they refused to, to let the system batter them down they refused to accept that they were beaten that they couldn't do it to shut up and walk away that they did they were out of their depth they i mean 
What the, I mean, Anne Williams, for example, you know, went to the European Court of Human Rights about three or four times. She kind of, she, 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 she got to know the legal system. The, she gave you a legal masterclass if you ever sat down with her. Um, Margaret Aspinall understood the political system and how you kind of worked politicians and how you worked chief constables and that. And it was phenomenal to see and their resilience and how they educated themselves and how they pushed themselves to the forefront and the respect they got. Now, it's just a shame that that came out of such a, a terrible, terrible tragedy. But if you'd have said to either of those women uh, in, in 1989, this, you're going to go on and do this, they'd have laughed in your face and gone, I'm just a, I'm just a housewife, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just a mother, that's all I am. And yet, if the kids, today, if young women today for them could see that and go, you know what? You can actually change the world. You've got it in you to change the world. Just look at how these women did it. Don't, it's a shame how they had to do it because they lost a child, but it is possible. Things are possible like that. And they're heroic stories, which I think, and I would love to think in future, they will be taught, but and it'll be a great thing to come out of the Hillsborough disaster, is if kids were taught those stories. Um, you've got an eclectic list of people including Jack Jones, yeah. um, a trade union leader, fought in the Spanish Civil War. He never stopped fighting, did he? No. Jack's story is one of the most inspirational that I've come across. And I, I, I say, I mean, we made a film about him with Hurricane Films uh, called Unsung Hero. Um, because I, I, I said to me, he was, he was the left's Churchill. And when I said that, loads of people on the left went, don't you put him in the same breath as Churchill. But the <laughs> point I made was he was a major, major figure uh, in the last century. Ridiculed, ridiculed by um, the right, you know, smeared as a spy, which was complete bollocks. Um, and that, that phrase, there was, there was once a Gallup poll which found that people thought he was the most powerful man in Britain. That was used against him rather than for what the man did. Now, this was a man... I do, I do actually think he's the greatest person from the city. We talk about John Lennon and Ken Doyle and people like that. But I think if you look at his life and what he did, I would say try and beat Jack Jones. Born in abject poverty in Garston by the docks. I mean, really, really, really poor. Um, he was, he, at the time, he became the youngest uh, councillor ever to be elected to Liverpool City Council in the 20s, in the 30s. Sorry. He then goes and fights in the Spanish Civil War. And when we made this film, we went out there to see where he was shot. He was shot on the hill in, in Gandessa. And I just put myself in that position. As you can still see, you can still see bits of shrapnel on the floor, no? sardine tins and stuff. It was that untouched territory, you know? And I imagined being a 25-year-old from Liverpool, just a docker. This steep hill at the top of it with these concrete pillar boxes where uh, the fascist forces were shooting down you with machine guns. You have Mussolini's uh, Air Force above you. You've got a ragged rifle, an armed Russian rifle that doesn't work half the time. You've got friends around. You're not trained, really, in military combat. You're very, very, very uh, what's the word? fundamental. Um, and you've got around you kind of young men dying and screaming. And you're there going up the hill with this. All because you're principled. All because you think there's problems coming in Europe with the fascists. They're going to take over. And, of course, they're all put down. All these men, loads came from Liverpool as being communists and ragars, anarchists, etc., And there's non-intervention by the British government. Six years later, three years later, sorry, all the young men are being sent to, are being sent to fight the fascists, you know what I mean, and to die for it. And, and, and he got a sort of, it was a visionary thing, but what a brave thing those international brigades were. 
he comes back and he, he basically after the war, uh, he gets he, he, he now goes through the TNG Union, and he goes to Coventry, where, which is a big motor that the motor industry just started, and he he brings in the the amount of kind of reforms which which are unheard of that that they are the Saturday afternoon off things like that paid holidays. Um, I mean, just so many things that he did. You know, unions could, could kind of ed- be educated in, in work time, etc., and have meetings. Um, raised pay, raised conditions. Fantastic man, rises to the top. And then when he comes to retire at sixty, at sixty-five, you know, he's offered a seat in the Lords. Just no chance, no chance to have comes with that. He gets ten thousand off his union as a retirement gift, and he says, "What I'm going to do with that is, I'm going to set up a pensions convention because no one's doing this. I'm going to fight for pensioners' rights." You know, for those who are too old to work, too young to die. And he did that to his dying day, age 96. Phenomenal, phenomenal figure. And you met him, didn't you? I met him a few times. Yeah, I met Jack. I met him on the Echo. Um, and I met him uh, when I was in the Mirror. And also, he had a 90th that came back to Liverpool in the Casa. And apparently, was, they were taking him around Garston, around the old place he went to. And he was looking at pictures on the wall. He could remember people from like 70 years ago. Oh, God, you know him, but he was a right character. Him and his dad's he down the shop around the corner, kind of thing. But uh, just just an amazing thing, an amazing, a story of the 20th century. He fought four of the greatest evils of the 20th century and, and I fought with such passion and conviction, you know, I never, ever forgot where he came from. So, I mean, that's a, that's another story that I think kids, that's someone from 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 Garston, you know, who did all that. Uh, to tell kids you can do it, you know what I mean? But, sorry, go on. So, I mean, you've mentioned Jack Jones. Um, you also mentioned Shankly. You also mentioned Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Why, why did you choose him? Because in terms of fame, he has had the shoulders of most of the people you've mentioned. Yeah. Well, if you met Ali, you've got to get in the book, haven't you? <laughs> no, there's a real reason I, I mentioned Ali, because um, the book's primarily about, about Britain and about kind of the history of the British people. Of course, Ali's American. But each chapter has a title about, what you know, kind of which defines them, Shankly, the joy bringers. The Mildreds, the relentless matriarchs. And Ali, I, I called the liberator. Jack Jones was the fighter because he kept fighting. But Ali was the liberator because of what he did for black people. And I remember when I went to interview him, I spent a day with him in, in, uh, when, that was 20 years ago. Fantastic day. And uh, before I went, a couple of black lads in the news said, you're interviewing Ali. I, I, can't, I can't believe you're interviewing Ali. I don't like Ali either, actually, to be honest. He was my hero. And he went, yeah, but... but it was much more than that to us. Because when we went, th- these were lads who'd gone to school in the 60s in Liverpool. One of my mates, Morris Besman, who I mentioned the book, in Kirby. So the, we were the only blacks, we were the only black kids in Kirby, apart from the Contees. Uh, and he said, and just getting abused was a daily thing. You know, we didn't think there was anything, anything uh, you know, unusual about that. We just thought that's what happened, you know, if, if, you, if you're black, basically, in a white man's world. And then Ali was coming and Ali was winning and Ali was saying, you don't have to take this. I'm not going to fight with Vietnam. And he looked the prettiest, you know, the wittiest, the greatest, the, the most balletic, the most beautiful, the, most, the hardest. And the next day going to school, people were slightly more than all of us. Because there weren't many black heroes back then. There were no black footballers, really. You know, Clyde Best, maybe one. A lot of the black singers were American singers that kind of, you know. But there weren't and certainly many black actors, many black faces on the telly. So Ali, who was loved in this country, he gave these people so he gave black people in this country, black workers people, so much and so much self-belief. Um, so I thought he deserves to be in the book for that because 
that's what he did. So I meant, I do, I went to his funeral actually. I, went, I covered his funeral as well in Louisville. And that was a phenomenal day because I, we went, to, I went to his old house in, in, um, in Louisville. And when, when his coffin went past, you know, all the neighbors, that was a black neighborhood, obviously. And I spoke to, I just interviewed a few people, and there's one fella like in his, in his 70s, yeah, it would have been. And um, again, he said, are you, are you proud to all, all, all the press and the cameras all over the world? He says, that doesn't bother me. He, you, you had a different Ali to us. Ali was the man. He said, when, 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 I, was, when I was young, same age as Ali, um, we couldn't get on buses. We had, to get on we had to sit in different parts of buses. We couldn't get to different restaurants. You know, this was our reality. And, and his great quote was, he freed us from the prison of our own inferiority. And I just thought, you know, wow. So, so yeah, I mean, and of course, I, another reason I wanted to put him is the great quote he gave us about Liverpool. It was where, um, so it, everyone, everyone in America thinks you're from London, aren't they, if you've got an English yeah, accent. Yeah. And Ali thought we are from London, because we were from a London newspaper. So I'm walking around his gym in Michigan, and I have to say at this point, this was 20 years ago, so he's suffering badly from, from Parkinson's, but he, but he, he comes in and out of it, you know. And he showed me these, old, these pictures around, these fantastic black and white photographs around his gym, which he wasn't really fighting him, but his wife had put there to try and help him with his Parkinson's, maybe, you know, get in there, punch a few bags now. And he comes to the picture of the Beatles, the famous one where he puts, he's got his arm up, four Beatles have fallen back. I don't know if you can remember that. Yeah. And he says, the, the, the Beatles. And I says, I says, I know, yeah, they're, they're from my city. And he looked at me. And he was like, yeah, from London. And he says, oh. he said, then you ain't no fool if you're from Liverpool. <laughs> I thought that should go on a T-shirt. Yeah. yeah. So. Wow, wonderful stuff. Um, you do a chapter on the nurses as well, don't yeah. you? And you kind of mention about Paul McCartney in that. Just expand on that because you've got one end yeah. of the fame spectrum, the hero spectrum, and another. But that's really interesting, that, because I initially once, I initially um, had, had McCartney down as a chapter because I'd interviewed him, interviewed him twice in Barcelona one before, before concerts. And when you look at McCartney's story, he's a proper working class hero. Apart from the fact that he changed the world with his music and his talent, um, of the Beatles, I mean, obviously, Ringo's more working class, but of Lennon and McCartney, and, of course, Lennon gets the because of his song, Working Class Hero. He's the man who's always the Working Class Hero. But of course, his, his upbringing was, was far more middle class than Paul's. With his aunt Mimi, he lived in a you know, middle class house. McCartney, the McCartney's were, were counseling those kids, you know. And especially when their mother died at 14, when he was 14, you know, they, they didn't have much money. So McCartney was a proper working class kid. And when you look at what the, and also McCartney, I think, put more back into his city than any of them. You know, he loved the city. Well, you look at Lipper, you look at, um, uh, you, you know, in fact, he comes back all the time. And, and just, I mean, two Hillsborough records he sang on. So just little things like that. I think he's yeah. very proud to come back here. And he did a great interview with Playboy magazine in the 80s where, where he said, um, I've travelled the world. I met presidents, I met prime ministers, I met everyone. And no one's impressed me more than the average person from my own city. More, no more down-to-earth, intelligent, wise people than them. So he was always given Liverpool praise, I thought. And of course, the Beatles... Did change the world for working class people. I mean, prior to that, prior to the 1964, 63, if you were if you were a northerner in the arts, you had to change your accent. I mean, literally in Liverpool, actors like John Gregson, Rex Harrison, they had to speak with RP. Um, singers like Billy Fury, they were told I'd to speak with an American transatlantic accent 
or speak with RP or forget it because regional accents equates to boring, dull provincialism. You've done nothing. And that was right across. That wasn't just Liverpool. That was all accents. You don't hear it. Don't, you don't hear them. You know, you may hear, say, in those new wave films, the angry young man films, kind of, you know, standard northern put-together accent, but you don't hear from genuine from people. And the Beatles just came and said, sod that, blow this away, this is us, take us or leave us. You know, not happening if you don't. Never been, never happened before. So again, imagine what confidence that gave a lot of working class kids around across the country, right across the world, really, across, say, even America, you know, with the, these people, they don't, that's probably in America's a bit different, but certainly in this country, if you're from Manchester or Glasgow, anything, this is just speaking with accents, isn't it? So phenomenal. So I was going to do a chapter on that. And then something was nagging away at me. I looked at other people in there and I thought, you know, Paul's a billionaire. A few stories about him being a bit tight. <laughs> <laughs> He'd done a few interviews with papers, let's say, that aren't really that popular up here. And one, one appeared one week on the front page. I thought, now it could have been that it was hijacked or whatever, but just something in the back of my head said, that's not a chapter on its own. McCartney doesn't sit there with Hilton Woods and Dennis Skinner and Jack Jones and Butler. So then it occurred to me because during the time I had to go into hospital because they found I had prostate cancer and they took me prostate out. But I was amazed that they could do it during lockdown in Liverpool, you know, in, in the Royal, which was, a, which was a COVID central. It's okay now, by the way, it's, it's gone. But, um, so I was in there when, when COVID was going on, and it just occurred to me, I was speaking to the nurses, blah, blah, blah. And of course, when I, when I thought back to McCartney, I thought, I can't leave him out the book, but I can't do a full chapter on him. And I remember that when I'd interviewed him, so I'd watched a sound check that day, it was just Barcelona, this is again about 20 years ago. And, um, and he'd played um, My Love, and I'd said to him, my mum loved that song, and she died last year, and I got quite emotional listening to it. And he, he was genuinely, because he's, he's interviewed, been interviewed thousands of times. You know, he's, there's no questions he can't come back at. But it kind of knocked him slightly. He went, really? I said, yeah, she loved that song. When I played Day She Die seven months ago, and I got all choked up. I said, so thanks for that. And he went, I'm going to play that tonight. I'm going to dedicate that to your mum. And I said, great. He said, but don't, don't, you know, I'm not going to say I'm saying, but you, when you, I said, oh, thanks then. Thanks. And he started asking, he said, when did she die? Blah, blah. And he said, Never forget about your mum. Never, never. Think about it every day. It's good you think about it. He said, I think of my mum every day. And she died when I was 14. Because, you know, they're, they're, they're what, they made you. You can't replace them. They're the real, didn't say they're the real heroes. That would be playing it. But he said, they're, they're, they're the most important people. So I thought, well, there's your chapter, the Mother Marys. You know, the link it, go into that. Do the stuff on McCartney. But links the fact that he'd be the first to admit for as much of his talent, for as much of his fame, his mother was more heroic. Um, and of course, then was the time when nurses were dying on the, on the COVID wards. I was actually in the hospital. Not, nobody died on my ward, but I was feeling, I was conscious. So I thought, well, link it into that, link McCartney's now, and end it with saying, you know, I'm sure McCartney would agree that for, he may change the world, but these people are changing it every day. So that was the, it was basically a literary ploy to get McCartney in, but <laughs> I think it worked. Because I call that chapter the Mother Mary's. I focused on five stories of, 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 of nurses on the nursing side who died uh, during the Jordan. Even though I didn't know any of them, but I was picked up stories of them. So, I mean, that's real heroism, isn't it? I just go in there every day knowing that you could die. I mean, and just going in through crap pay. Yeah. Let's hope people don't forget that. 
well, that's is right. And people, we don't. I mean, we probably knew that before anyway. We all knew. Everyone loves nurses, blah blah blah. But you know, I kind of look back and think, and not just the nurses, of course, carers. I mean, look at that fantastic um, play the other week with, with Jodie Comer and, and Stephen Graham, which brought home to a lot of people what those brave, badly paid people were doing, going every day because they really loved their job and they loved they loved the old people they could see around were dying. Um, and they were just used, really, weren't they? I mean, and, and it's, a, it's a shocking thing, you know. And I hope when this inquiry comes out that, you know, we get some proper answers, but I'm not holding my breath. No, no, don't hold your breath on that one. Before, uh, before we leave you, Brian, uh, you've mentioned a lot of Liverpool-based heroes, but you were very particular in putting the spotlight on Marcus Rashford. And I don't think there are many people in the country who would disagree with you there. Yeah, and... Um, uh, Marcus was an extension of the chapter I did on um, on the food bank lads, um, Ian Byrne and, and, and Dave Kelly. Because what they did, I'm going to speak about them briefly, yeah. Because what they did was phenomenal. They, they, these were two fellows who were councillors in Liverpool. Uh, oh, no, they were, they were trade unions, sorry, at the, at the time. And um, they were in Anfield, and they saw a queue outside an old picture house by Liverpool's ground. And he thought it was for the bingo. They went over for some reason. We looked inside, it was a food bank. This has gone back about five, six years. And it was so depleted, they were splitting bags of pasta to put into like sweet bags to give to these people, you know. And Ian says, it was like something like the 1920s, it was like soup kitchens. I couldn't believe this was happening in Liverpool in like, you know, the mid you know, 21st century. And so they said, we've got to do something about this. And they say, well, what can we do? Well, 50,000 people go to Liverpool, 35,000 go to Everton every week. Let's come to bring food, you know. Okay, yeah. So they got they got they got bins. They actually got wheelie bins. Put them outside each ground. Took off. It took off. It took off. Next thing you know, they provided thirty percent of the of the food bank requirements for like North Liverpool Food Bank. It spreads around the country. It's everyone's talking about football fans. They aren't all these hooligans or these stereotypes who just you know want to get drunk and, and, and fight. They're actually they're actually feeding the poor. Blah blah blah. Then the players start to get involved, you know, the, during you know during the, when COVID lockdown, and of course Rashford was was the greatest example of that. He wouldn't take no for an answer. This was a twenty-one year old Mancunian kid, really tough upbringing, you know, not the greatest of education in the sense that he was you would assume was that elegant and articulate. Basically, forcing the government into two U-turns on feeding kids during the summer holidays, and you know the, the power that brought the, the weight behind him. Um, it said so much, and, 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 and I end that chapter by saying that um, what they did, what, what Rashford and, and the food bank fellows from Liverpool did, was they overturned, they didn't just help the poor, they didn't just help feeding the people amongst them and bring this subject and being food poverty right up to the top of the agenda, but they overturned stereotypes in many sense about the fans and also with Rashford. Prior to this, prior to this generation of players now, who've earned more than players have ever done, we just saw them in the shadow, bling chasing, you know, oh, that's money and sex, and they're not really about anything, are they? We've, they've changed the perception of footballers now, people who actually, you can still still be on multi million pound contracts. And why shouldn't you if, you if you're the most talented footballer, you know, at a football club? But you can put something back, you can care, you can remember the working class place you came from. And I think that, you know, that's a great thing. It's bringing for football, especially at a time when it's, so many questions about it, you know. So it restores your faith a bit too. You look at players slightly differently now. And you think, you know, the, the Liverpool and Everton have got them 
great players like Andy Robertson, Jordan Henderson. We know the stuff they do, and uh, it's important, I think. So that was Brian Reed there talking about his new book, Diamonds in the Mud, A Working Class Hero is Something to Me, and that's published by Mirror Books. Did that ring any bells with you? Of course. Um, I, I, find it, I find it really interesting that we do seem to spend an awful long time drilling down into, uh, you know, stuff that's probably not that relevant to modern culture with regards to kings and queens and stuff like that from the past. You know, there are plenty of people in everyday life that deserve to be celebrated and promoted a lot more. And Brian's met so many of these people. I mean, meeting Muhammad Ali, meeting Paul McCartney, um, meeting the Dockers that he talks about there, um, big fan of Jack Jones as well, who carried on fighting right till the end of his life. I mean, I remember he was involved in the pensioners lobby back in the 80s and 90s. What a guy. Um, fought in the Spanish Civil War, top trade union leader. And I think he's absolutely right that we should learn more about them. And his book, uh, Diamonds in the Mud, is a good place for anyone to, st to start, I would argue. Probably a lifelong ambition for him as well, Mick, to get that book published. And, uh, and good on him for doing it, because he's obviously a very busy guy and, and no doubt that must have taken a little bit of a labour of love to get done. But well done on him. Today's episode of the Baltic Triangle podcast has been powered by Talk Talk's Future Fibre, the UK's fastest and most reliable broadband technology, which is now available here in Liverpool. Search Talk Talk Future Fibre to find out more. Well, I think that's more or less it from us this week, Mark, um, or should I say this month. Um, if you've got any ideas about people or organisations that you think we should be interviewing and featuring in, in the Baltic Triangle podcast, then do get in touch with us. The email address is... You can get hold of us on info at baltictrianglepodcast.com. That's info at baltictrianglepodcast.com. And if you do get a chance to get along and see Luban Restaurant for yourself, I can highly recommend it. The food is outstanding and so is the company when you go through the doors. Nice one. All the best. See you very, very soon. Stay safe and thanks for listening and we'll see you again next month. <laughs>